Good morning, everybody. I did, that was a much louder response than 9 a.m. Also, I did not, again, time that walk perfectly for when the end of the announcements were, so next time, next year, when I'm asked to preach. But good morning, Redeemer. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning, worshiping the Lord today. If you don't know me, my name is David Cook. Uh, if you have a small kiddo here at Redeemer or have any interaction with Journey Kids, you probably know my wife, Allison. We've been attending Redeemer Fellowship for seven years now, which doesn't feel real, as cliche as that sounds, because it feels like just yesterday we showed up as newlyweds who moved to St. Charles and were looking for a new church. We came to Redeemer once and decided to stay right then and there. Our son, Calvin, is, he's the tiny, blonde, curly-haired little bowling ball that you'll see running around usually after first service. Uh, he's gone for his nap time today, but if you do see him, just chase him around for me, take him for a couple laps around the church, wear him out, that'd be, that'd be great. Um, so when Pastor Jimmy called me on the phone and asked me to preach, I was filled with the same excited, nervous energy that I always get when called upon to preach. I genuinely do enjoy the process, the preparation, and the late nights of way too much coffee. I think I started a Chemex pour over about 9 p.m. last night for putting the finishing touches on here and just taking that time to dive into the word. And we hang up the phone, and after sharing a good laugh, he texts me the passage where we're going to be in the book of Acts. I turn to my Bible to see where we are in the life of the ministry of Paul and the apostles, and wide-eyed, I, I want to know what the members and attenders of Redeemer Fellowship are going to cheerfully be discussing that week in their homes, as, as families, at their kitchen tables, and in their community groups. What uplifting themes has God providentially brought for us this week in his word? And I arrive at our passage this morning, and I find a controversy and a riot. Swell. Great. Just, just when I want to talk about a post-church lunch with family. That's awesome. We've read about civil unrest in the book of Acts before, and, and these incidents aren't new, We've seen Paul arrested, charged, imprisoned, and even having to escape mobs by being lowered into a basket by, out of a window, like real, real heroic stuff. These types of incidents and resistance tend to happen wherever the gospel goes. And remember, they, they try to do the same things to Jesus during his earthly ministry as he did the good works of his father. So what is it about the gospel that brings about these types of reactions, these fight-or-flight responses. And there's much, much more. There's a deep-seated issue here to talk about. As Christians, we know, or we should know, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces over our present darkness. And what does it say about our own fallenness when we experience the same fight-or-flight response when convicted of our own sin? If you're going to leave here remembering just one thing, it's this. God gives us the life and power that our idols can never provide. God gives us the life and power that our idols can never provide. 
So if you have a Bible with us this morning, you can turn to Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 40. It's a lot of verses, so I'm just gonna read through all in once, and then we're going to dive into the passage together, provide a little context, and then we will round out here. So Acts chapter 19, starting in verses 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only of this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great Artemis, great goddess Artemis, may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed for magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him, urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanting to, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried with one voice, great is, the, is Artemis of the Ephesians. But when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. And if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And then he had said these things and he dismissed the assembly. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we come expectantly to your word this morning, praying that you would move by your spirit to bring conviction, to bring us to Jesus, to highlight Christ in this text today. Lord, would you move powerfully? 
Lord, we ask you to do it. So we worship you in gladness and thanksgiving. Lord, we pray this in your heavenly name. Amen. So we have a lot of texts to work through this morning. And there are a lot of things going on and a lot of dynamics at play here in this story. And much like life, it's hard to sort out all of the thousands of different things that the Lord is doing in this time. Sometimes it's very apparent how the Lord is working. We see conversions, people turning to Christ, repenting of their sin, clear teaching being given. And then we have moments like this, where chaos abounds and it feels like nobody's in control. And yet we know that it's the Lord who is at hand. One of the best pieces of advice I ever got from, from a team leader during my time in ministry was when the unexpected happened, especially in the context of a large group of people, was to take a step back for a moment and just observe how God is working in the hearts of the individual people there. Because even when our plans go completely sideways, God is still on the throne and at work and working all things for his good. And that is true here in the city of Ephesus. Last week you saw in verse 20 that the, Lord, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily in the city. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the work of the Holy Spirit People were being healed of their sicknesses, their spiritual oppressions, and, and turning away from their idols and false religions to the Lord, even at great cost. So last week, Dave, Dave DeHaan came and preached for us, and he preached about these new converts in Ephesus burning their books filled with magical incantations and magic, magic arts. And the value of these books were found to be 50,000 pieces of silver, roughly six to eight million dollars, depending on the publication date of your commentary and adjusting for cumulative inflation. I had to figure that out from when that note was given. It's still a lot of money. Now, the pragmatist might say, well, well, not so fast. Couldn't we, I mean, the church find a way to use those kind of funds? Like, isn't some good that we could do with that money? But no, or as Paul writes in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? We have a different allegiance now, a new affiliation, and a new spirit that by that spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh. I can't help but think that perhaps Paul had this scene in his mind as he later wrote to the Ephesians about how God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. For in him we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses, and according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Who needs the wealth of this world compared to knowing and being near to Christ? No fortune comes close. So God is clearly at work in Ephesus, and we, we get a glimpse of Paul's continued plans on his missionary journey, starting in verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I have also must see Rome. 
And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So Macedonia would have included the churches in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And Achaia was home to the church in Corinth, which scholars believe that at this time, Erastus was carrying with him the letter of 1 Corinthians on his travels. This travel brief really just gives us an outline for the remainder of our time in Acts and Paul's recorded ministry. And that's where the action picks up. As Luke records, there was no little disturbance that arose concerning the way those who publicly professed, professed and followed Jesus. And as a lover of understatement, I love that sentence. We meet Demetrius, who's a silversmith and a demagogue who made silver shrines of the temple of Artemis located in Ephesus. And these shrines would have been for home use or, or used in sacrificial offerings to the goddess on the daily. That the temple of Artemis was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and it attracted thousands and thousands of worshipers and travelers every year from across Asia. Artemis herself was the fabled Greek goddess of hunting, wild nature, chastity, and fertility, all rather important for survival in the ancient world. So it was important that she be pleased with the people, hence their devotion to her. Demetrius gathers the other craftsmen and starts to cause a ruckus. He basically says, listen, we, we all know from this business, from the making of these idols, we have our wealth, we have our income. Well, this Paul has come here to Ephesus and all of Asia and persuaded them to trust in this Jesus, this Christ, and from what we profit is now worthless. These gods made with human hands are not gods. Which, which I don't know if you caught that, but unintentionally, I think Demetrius gives us what I think might be the best summation for what an idol is, that the gods made with our hands are not God, that the creation is not actually the creator. And there's lots of examples we could give from the Bible for what an idol is, but most famously, the most famous example is more than likely the golden calf of Exodus 32. If you don't know the story, I'll, I'll summarize it. It goes something like this. The people of Israel are delivered out of the land of Egypt by God, brought through the parted Red Sea, fed and sustained through the wilderness by bread descended from heaven until they arrive at Mount Sinai. And there, it's there that God descends at the top of the mountain in smoke and fire, and Moses travels to meet God and receive the law at the top of the mountain. This presumably takes a while. For a little while later, we see the people gather together to go to Aaron, the chief priest, and say, hey, Aaron, make gods that will go before us. This Moses guy, the one who's leading us, we don't know what's happened to him, so we'd really just like a new god now. If you could make one for us, that'd be, that'd be great. And Aaron says, okay, and, and just does it. Like, creating a calf made of gold, of the rings and earrings of the people. And the kicker, when he's done, Aaron says to the people, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Like, he just says it like it's true. Like, did he not forget or forget that quickly everything that has happened? Or is it that the people are drawn to worship, they're so drawn to worship that they will literally compulsively worship anything in front of them? Well, in that sense, 
not, not much has changed. It gets worse. See, we are so prone to worship that it's not enough that idols are just out there. We have to bring them into our hearts and into our beings. In Ezekiel 14, chapter, or chapter 14, verse three, God rebukes the elders of Israel when he says that these men have taken their idols into their hearts. So what is, in fact, an idol? Like, if, if an idol could be made of gold and silver, but also brought into my heart, what is it then? There's lots of definitions that we could use, but I'm, I'm prone to take and receive the one from the late Tim Keller. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, and anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. An idol is the source of spiritual addiction and can be made of anything. And if Demetrius is to be believed, idol making can be profitable. He sees the writing on the wall for the future of his profession. There is danger not only for our trade that it will become disreputable, but that our great temple will be counted as nothing. Demetrius, among other things, is, is actually a pretty adept, adept economist. He knows what's gonna happen or what happens when you have a large supply of idols and the demand for those idols craters. You have a bubble that's about to burst. That's biblical economics 101 right there. But Paul's witness and ministry and the spirit of the Lord has been so effective through the entire region that it's actually put a dent in the city's number one export. A dent not caused because they were trying to send a message or some organized boycott, but because they were just wanting to be faithful to the Lord. We don't do that anymore. We, we follow Christ alone. We don't do this practice any longer. So this fervor is, is produced through this appeal to the Ephesians' pride. In Demetrius's eyes, it's a threat to his very life, and that threat must be dealt with. The crowd reaches a fever pitch, and they begin to chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, almost to say, like, great is our God, and great are we as Ephesians to have her. It's more than just religious pride that's hurt. It's, it's civic and economic pride. It's this deeply rooted sense of identity and culture, almost like this, this nationalistic pride that these citizens feel are under threat. And by this point, the entire city is filled with you know, confusion as, as tends to happen when large mobs gather. There wasn't enough time to, to make signs to explain, you know, this is who we are, this is why we're here, and this is what we're mad about. No one did that. It's a really ineffective way to spread a message. Acts records for us that the crowd makes it to the theater in Ephesus, which was an auditorium that could seat about 20,000 people, and in, it was used for regular town business meetings. And this was the place of Ephesus for the airing of grievances. Two of Paul's companions, Gaius and Aristarchus, are dragged into the theater and presumably are released unscathed as, as Aristarchus does actually appear later in the book of Acts on Paul's travels. And like a good friend, Paul wants to, he actually wants to go into the crowd, perhaps to rescue his friends, perhaps because he's looking to preach and, and have a platform or make a plea to the crowd. But the disciples and, and even the Asiarchs, who were these prominent Roman elected officials based in cities where temples of religious worship took place, like Ephesus, urged him not to go. 
which tells you just how bad the crowd was if both the Christians and the non-Christians are in agreement. Like, that's a bad idea, man. Don't do it. Paul would have been in real mortal danger had he gone. And the Christians are, are obviously concerned for the life and the well-being of their friend, but I imagine the Asiarchs are too, as they're noted as, as friends of Paul here in the text. I also imagine there's probably this looming threat in the back of their heads of them having to go back to Rome to report. So uh, what happened under your watch to our fellow Roman citizen? Like that's a bad look for all of this happening for them right then. But we'll get to the Romans later. Confusion abounds in the crowd and, and, and many are not even knowing why they'd even come together in the first place. Just I imagine random groups of people shouting for whatever reason they're demand about. It's really a bad way, again, to get a singular message across. So a man named Alexander enters our narrative as someone that the Jews put forward to the crowd. And his exact role is not super clear in the text. He's perhaps put forward to disassociate the Jews from the Christians, like, hey, you really, your beef is with them, it's not with us, like, we're, we don't want any part with this. But the crowd isn't buying it, and they shout him down. So now we get to the town clerk, who would be like the mayor or chief administrator of the town and liaison to the Romans, who was the best and, and most successful of anyone at calming down the crowd. He says, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro-councils. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And the assembly dismissed after he said these things. It's a really unspiritual resolution that we get. Not exactly what we're expecting to see in the, books of Act, in the book of Acts with, with large movements of the spirit. But God uses whatever means he so wishes to accomplish his purpose. The clerk's argument goes something like this. Like, guys, who doesn't know that our city is great? How great our temple is? Like, don't, everybody knows this. Like, are we really that insecure in ourselves that we think that people are just going to forget? Who doesn't know that we're the best? The sacred stone mentioned is, is more than likely a meteorite that struck nearby, and, and meteorites were commonly associated with Artemis worship. But he goes on to say that the men who've been brought forward are neither sacrilegious or blasphemers of the goddess. And taken literally, sacrilegious can be construed as, as temple robber, which Paul and his fellow Christians would certainly not be guilty of. But blasphemous, uh, given what we know that Paul preached of idols in the past, he may well have said things that the crowd could have found blasphemous. If we go back to uh, Paul in Athens in Acts 17, or perhaps that the clerk is talking directly about the men of the theater, we really don't know. What Luke records is just what happened. He doesn't endorse their accuracy. It's just what the town clerk said. The clerk tells Demetrius and the mob, if you have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. Otherwise, we're all in danger of being charged with rioting and getting a Roman boot pressed on our necks. 
The Romans wouldn't have taken kindly to civil disorder no matter who was causing it. And the clerk's words are enough to assuage the crowd and they dismiss, putting an end to the immediate danger. Again, not quite the, the spiritual resolution you would expect with Paul and the disciples being saved by threat of Roman suppression or the end of Paul's time in Ephesus before departing for the churches in Macedonia. It's not the last time that we see this type of violent oppression to the gospel in the book of Acts. Have you thought about why that is? And chances are, if you've shared your faith recently, the reaction you got probably wasn't the starting of throwing hands and throwing punches. Like, it wasn't violent, unless you were being a jerk, in which case, stop it. Like, find a better way to share your faith. But we, we expect all sorts of some resistance, right? Like, we fear it's gonna be awkward between us now. They might be rude. We think about the how and why are all the reasons that, that we first resisted when we heard the gospel message, when someone was preaching to us. We don't naturally expect openness. The company I work for had a summit at our headquarters this past February for all the sales employees to come in from all across the country, right? So we've talked to each other online, but we've never seen each other face to face. Uh, so we have these relationships, but before we all arrived, the CEO of our company, he sent a message through our uh, chat that he makes it a policy not to discuss sports, politics, or religion in the workplace. Boundaries and resistance. I don't know if Demetrius ever heard Paul in the theater or the synagogue or had contact with Christians in Ephesus, but there is something that Demetrius seems to understand about the gospel message, that in order to experience new life in Christ, the old self and its body of sin has to die first. There's a spiritual death involved here. And the way Paul talks about it in many of his letters, including Ephesians, Romans, Colossians, is this image of putting off of the new self and putting on the new self in Christ. Romans 6, 6, or in Romans 6, 6, Paul says it like this, that we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For who has died, for the one who has died to sin has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again, for death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he has died to die, he has died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul repeats this theme in, in Ephesians chapter four, which is a letter written only about five years after this incident occurs. He writes, put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new self created after the likeness of God, which is true righteousness and holiness. Part of the deceitful, deceitful desires are the idols we used to worship, these counterfeit gods that demanded we love, trust, and obey them. One of the ways we identify idols now is how we react when they get threatened. 
because if we were to lose it, or if it were to be destroyed, it would be perceived that it would be the end for us. Our spiritual fight or flight responses are activated. We either go on the attack or we, we flee, we run, we try to escape the issue, escape the conviction that we feel. But there's no place that Christ will not go to pursue us. He is the love that will not let us go. I have two closing thoughts, so they're kind of long thoughts, so don't get too excited. Uh, and for us to kind of wrap things up. They're not alliterative, they don't rhyme, I, I didn't have enough time for that, but they're the two themes that God has been pressing on my heart this week that I've had to continually preach to myself as I've been working through this text, and so I wanted to share those with you today. The first theme is that God has been working on me is to remember who you belong to. What citizenship do I have? And how did I receive it? The mob of our text answered, answers this question, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That's where their loyalties lay. The figure of Artemis came to encapsulate everything for them. She was, she was how they made their wealth. It gave them their civic identity and social standing. And it's all based on a falsehood, just a God made by human hands. But Paul has this, he has this interesting section about citizenship that, again, he writes in Ephesians, starting in chapter two, verse 12, remember, remember that you, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and the strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for, the God, for, for God by the Spirit. And I can't help but imagine that God had the temple of Artemis in his mind as he's writing that. This is the new temple being built by God for his people. How are we citizens? Like, did we, did we pass a test? Did we pass the citizenship test somehow? No, it's that Christ said that I could come and follow him. That, that was it. While I was far off, he brought me near. When I was dead in my trespasses and sins and following the course of this world, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us made us alive together with Christ. Did we earn it? No, for it is by grace you have been saved. Idolatries can take all sorts of forms or odd forms to, to tempt us to our ultimate allegiance, to take it away from our devotion to God and to those things to love, trust, and obey. Personal idols like love, family, money, achievement, cultural idols like individual freedom or individual expression, or even economic prosperity, even intellectual idols, which we would call ideologies. Idols don't often appear sinister on the outside. They more often than not are God's good gifts that are twisted and corrupted to be made ultimate. 
And those things can easily creep into the church and into our lives. Scholars say that the book of Colossians was written probably about the same time as the book of Ephesians, which which makes sense if you given uh, their similar themes and structure, if you compare the two books side by side. Paul writes in Colossians chapter two, verse six, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. A book that I've been enjoying recently is, uh, it's titled A Little Book on the Christian Life. You can actually find it on the book stand for, uh, for the women's ministry. It's out there. I think you have to pay money for it or it's free. Someone correct me, unless you just go and swipe books, but I would take it, but I I'm, don't belong to the women's ministry. Uh, so the book, The Little Book on the Christian Life by John Calvin, and in it there's this quote, uh, it's an excerpt from Calvin's Institutes. The goal of God's work in us is to bring our lives into harmony and agreement with his own righteousness. And so to manifest to ourselves and others, our identity is his adopted children. The work of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life is to conform the believer to the image of Christ, the showing our family and our citizenship where it lies. The second theme that God has been pressing on me is that God has the power to destroy spiritual strongholds in your life. And this is important because sin and idolatry will be with us and tempting us all the way until we go on to our reward. It won't end. If you do any research on the temple of Artemis, you'll discover that by the time of Luke's writing, the temple had already been destroyed at least twice and rebuilt twice by the Ephesians. It was destroyed once by flood and the second by arson. The Ephesian mob most likely knew this history and were willing to defend and rebuild what was so precious to them. Don't think we aren't so stubborn to do that too. 2 Corinthians 10 verses four through five states that, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty, lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. I love these two verses because they serve as this merciful and hopeful promise. There are some idols and sins that we, we bring into our hearts that are fortified and God in his jealous love will just not let us have them. There are also strongholds that we, we don't want temptations and, and sins that we pray for God to demolish. And we need to be reminded that he is powerful and capable to do it. Uh, I'll end with a, a personal story that I don't think I've, I've shared publicly before other than, than first service. Uh, it's not scandalous, so don't calm down. Don't get so excited. Uh, but growing up, I was picked on and, and made fun of a lot. You know, that's, that's not really unique. It's a common experience for a lot of us. In high school, that took the form of being called a, a screw-up or my friends yelling at me, you know, fail for any minor mishap that would occur, right? They would use my initials to talk about how unlucky their life was, like, oh, DK, man, like, I can't believe that happened. And uh, I, I don't tell this story for sympathy, but really to, to, really to demonstrate how to create an idol. It, it's really just my villain, villain origin story uh, at this point. 
and what happened through the course of those years was that message got internalized, like deep in my heart that I was a failure at a screw up and never good enough for anyone, that I was, was worthless with nothing to offer to the world. And so this idol of success was born right here. Even, not raving success, like just proof that I wasn't a failure, that I wasn't that, right? Like I didn't need the grand accolades, just like not, in the negative sense, just not a failure. But no proof was enough. No sacrifice was enough. It wasn't until I became a Christian that I began to experience any real freedom and joy. And I was not loved because of who I was or my good works or because I was good enough because of who Jesus is and what he had done for me. And it was this transition from feeling hopelessly worthless to, to finally being able to receive grace and mercy and not being so consumed with thinking about myself all the time. But just like the temple, idols can get rebuilt over and over again. And for years, it, it proved to be a stronghold in my life. And, and admittedly, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Admittedly, even this idea of success would even invade my preaching, if I'm be completely honest with you, that I've had to repent of over again. The first time I ever publicly preached in college ministry, I had a friend tell me he was gonna skip the meeting because it's never good when the interns speak. Um, so guess who worked extra hard because he had something to prove? Me. This need to prove that I wasn't a failure infected everything. Every relationship, every job, to some days, and on some days, to a crippling effect. It felt like I would have rather died than for that thing to be true. And then one day, God, in his absolute divine mercy, brought my idolatry to a head. On a Monday in March 2020, I got fired from a job that I very much loved, working with people that I loved. I failed in one of the most serious ways that I thought possible. Losing the means of providing an income for my family, the professional status that I had worked so hard to build, just gone in an evening. It was like a scene in a movie where I was given a cardboard box to like put all of my stuff in <laughs> to go take to my car. Like, it happened, and I, I loaded up my car to drive to the home that Allison and I had just bought six months before. And here's what happened to me in that car. At my lowest, I knew God was there with me in that car on the drive home. There was no valley I could sink low enough to that God couldn't reach me. It was, it, it was as if the spirit, not, not audibly, but said, David, there's never been, I've, I've never been nearer to you than this moment right now. You are not forgotten or forsaken. And then only what I can attribute to, to God's providence, the, the first appointment that I had on my calendar the next day was meeting with my counselor. <laughs> uh, and sitting on the couch, I, I recalled what happened the previous evening, and I'll tell you, I, I bawled my eyes out to my counselor, not because of my failure or that it proved to be you know, true, but because I was just happy to be alive. 
For years, I was deathly afraid that if my failure status was proved and confirmed, that would be my utter despair, both literally and figuratively. God had to forcefully, painfully, mercifully demolish that idol stronghold for my good and for his glory. And I thank him every day that he did. Not that I don't struggle, but I think about that moment a lot. The biblical formula is that death always precedes resurrection and new life. The old self must pass away before the new self can be put on. So many of us are spending our energy and our effort straining for an identity and power that can only be found in the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's nothing more for us to do than to receive it as adopted sons and daughters of our God, our Father. So let's worship him with gladness and thanksgiving that we've been made alive in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and gracious and merciful. You do not leave us to our own devices, but Lord, you, you bring us out of darkness and our sin and despair to give us new life and new hope. Lord, you say in your word that you will go, <laughs> you will leave the 99 to go after the one. Lord, I thank you for your lavish grace and mercy, which we don't deserve. Lord, may we worship with gladness and thanksgiving and be reminded of your great work for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.